Who do you say that, uh, that Jesus is? So this is just about the most important question each of us can answer. And this is the question being pressed upon us early on in the gospel according to Mark. So thus far in the book, this question is, is brought to bear by means of several different situations which are being really closely observed by the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. So you have many of these situations in chapters 1 and 2 where the sick are brought to Jesus, and what does he do? He heals them. Uh, you have uh, many people who are possessed by demons who are brought to Jesus, and what does he do with them? He delivers them from demon possession. You have impure people coming to Jesus, and he cleanses them. You have sinful people come to Jesus, and he forgives them. And what do all these things, what do all these situations reveal about the character of Christ? What is it about his identity that Mark wants us to see? It seems that what we need to see is that Jesus is the one who has all authority. Jesus has all authority. Another way to say this is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. This has not been an easy message for the Pharisees to swallow by any means. And the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, it's been brewing for a while in these two chapters. So from the very beginning of chapter 2 up to the end of the passage today, we have five stories of conflict, each escalating uh, past the other, so that this ultimately culminates in the Pharisees beginning to plot the murder of Jesus. You heard this in what Kelly just read for us. Look at the very end of the passage, chapter 3, verse 6. After all this, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now here's the question. What pushed the Pharisees over the edge? What, what one untouchable thing did Jesus touch? On what landmine did Jesus step that blew this conflict up into plots of his murder? Well, here, Jesus asserts his authority not only over their health, uh, not only over their demons, but here in this passage, Jesus claims that he has authority even over their religion. And this, for the Pharisees, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And this brings us to what I see as our main point this morning, and that is that Jesus, Jesus has all authority even over our religion. So when Christ comes into our lives, we all have um, kind of a broken form of religion in one way or another, right? It could be legalism to liberalism. It could be psychologism to activism, whatever it might be. The point is that Jesus did not come into our lives to kind of fit into these various broken forms of religion. He came to be Lord over them. So the question for each of us as we enter into this passage is this. Will we let Jesus take over the reins of our religious life? Will we recognize that Jesus is Lord even over our religion? Will we recognize that Jesus did not come to fit into our religion? Rather, Jesus himself is our religion. So with the Pharisees, it was a, it was a situation of, of losing the forest for the trees. They had become so enamored with the trees of their religion that they couldn't tell the bigger scene. They're, they're missing the big point, the forest. 
And what's the forest that the Pharisees were missing? It's that Jesus is Lord. And what are the trees that are keeping them from seeing this forest? Paradoxically, it's their religion. So this is a message, this is a passage for religious people. You see, the, the main problem with pharisaical religion is it's not that it's legalistic. It's that it has something other than Jesus at its center. Their entire religion was an exercise in missing the point. Which brings up an excellent point for us right off the bat, which is, if Jesus is not the center, if Jesus is not the point, the aim, the goal, the beginning of the end of everything we do in this religion of ours, if, if something else, anything else, even some well-meaning thing, displaces Jesus as the object of our faith and our worship, then what we have is pharisaical at heart, no matter what the manifestation of it is. So this is a question that we come to ponder this morning. I would encourage you to think of it this morning. Is Jesus the Lord of your religion? So to unfold this truth for us, Mark allows us to see Jesus in the context of two practices that are at the heart of religion, fasting and the Sabbath. And in doing so, he teaches us two truths that I want us to focus on this morning. The first is this, King Jesus turns our fasting into feasting. King Jesus turns our fasting into feasting. I think we see this in verses 18 through 22 there in chapter 2. So note there the context for verses 18 through 22. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. All right, so in this scene, the people of the day look around and they notice something. And what they notice is that there are lots, of, lots and lots of people fasting, a lot. So the, pra- the practice of fasting, so pro- some of you probably fast here, I'd recommend it, this is good. The practice of fasting is most basically a way to express an earnest uh, desire, a seeking after God. So when you fast, you cease from eating for a time in order to express that you have a hunger that goes deeper than a mere hunger for food. You have a spiritual hunger, a hunger for the presence of God himself. Fasting is good. It's commanded all over the Bible. It's even commanded in the law. It's good and it's right to express deep longing for for the presence and the blessing of God through fasting. The people of this day knew it, and so the properly religious folks were fasting. So there were still disciples of John the Baptist hanging around. They were fasting. There were Pharisees. There were those who were schooled in the law, and they were fasting. And the Pharisees had gotten really good at fasting, or really bad at fasting, depending on how you look at it. So they were so good at it, in fact, that they fasted way more than was required in the law. So on this topic, there was this big discrepancy between what the Jewish, Jewish scriptures uh, said about fasting and what the Jewish tradition or religion said about fasting. So in the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, there was required fasting once per year. That was the Day of Atonement. But in the Jewish religion, the tradition, it was different. It set the bar much higher. So over time, the spirit of the law was lost and the letter of the law was, was amplified and then it was codified so that In these successive rabbinic writings, the recommended fast was not once per year, which you see in the Torah, it was actually twice per week. So this was not the law, but it was the expectation. The point being, the religious religious folks of Jesus' day fasted a lot. 
So you can picture the scene. There's, there's these different kind of sects of religion. There's John the Baptist, the Pharisees, fasting, 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 fasting. And then there were the disciples of Jesus. Very oddly and very obviously, not fasting. Why not? This seems like a very legitimate question. Look there in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, that's, that is to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus, um, as he's going, he's acquiring all of these disciples, and they're not fasting. And Jesus seems to be approving of their not fasting. Now, why? Well, let's think about this. So if fasting is an earnest seeking after the presence of God, well, then what would be the one legitimate reason to stop fasting? So if, you, if your aim in fasting was to seek the presence of God, you could stop fasting when? Well, when God showed up. Are you starting to see the scandal of Jesus' words? So uh, think of it like a wedding. This is what Jesus says. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right, so, uh, so just imagine at a, at a wedding reception. It's in a ballroom. The music is pumping. People are dancing. It's a party. Uh, the doors fly open. The bride and groom come dancing in. They're hand in hand, smiles on their faces. They head to the dance floor. The music is cranked up even louder. The party is on. So then... Uh, the best man sees this time, so he heads up to the stage, he grabs the mic, he interrupts the band, and he says, all right, all right, now this is a celebration. This is what a wonderful day this is. In light of this momentous occasion, I'd like to call a fast. We, we all know there's nothing less appropriate for that moment. And why? Because the occasion is a celebration, and that's not what fasting is for. Fasting is about somber, sober anticipation, expectation. It's, it's expecting some celebration, maybe like a wedding day. But once the wedding day comes, once the groom steps foot into the ballroom, fasting gives way to feasting. On that day, you don't propose a fast, you propose a toast. The time for preparation has passed. The time for celebration has come. Expectation has given way to realization. So why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Why aren't Jesus' disciples properly anticipating the coming of God, the groom of the people of God. Because he's here. Because evidently, with the coming of Jesus, expectation has given way to realization. Once again, Jesus is forcing the Pharisees, he's forcing us to reckon with his identity. Who do you believe Jesus is? That's the question. If he's if he's Lord, if he's Messiah, and he's here, then stop fasting and start feasting. Start the, stop the anticipation and start the celebration. In Jesus, all of the religious priming of the pump has met its end. He's the point. He's the end. He's the goal. And he's here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, later on, he applies this to the church. This is what we read earlier in Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what he says there. 
He's talking to the church and he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, things like fasting, the good practice of fasting, that's a shadow. It's a, it's a form, it's an outline, it's a silhouette of something real. But when the real thing arrives, it's only proper to stop focusing on the shadow. We allow our eyes to trace the shadow up to the substance, that is, up to Christ. So, so you see how in all these stories, it's not really a story about fasting. You see that? Not chiefly. It's, a, it's about the fact that God's people, all throughout the prophets, they've been told to look forward to a wedding day. They've been told to look forward to a day when their groom, God himself, will come for them. And when he does, they should appropriately celebrate. They should honor him. They should recognize him for who he is. That is Lord, the one who has authority over all things, the one who's the king. So I just ask, is this, is this your religion? Is this what your spiritual life looks like? Have you, have you traced the, the forms and the shadows of spiritual life to lead you to the real thing, to Christ? Are you setting your faith on the, on the substance and not just the shadow? So, so those of us who fast for Christ, can you also feast with Christ? You who so faithfully serve Christ, can you also sit and enjoy Christ? Bible open, prayerfully communing with him. Has the presence of Christ reset? Has it reformed your religion? Are you focusing on the shadow or can you see the substance, Christ himself? Jesus kind of hammers and presses home this, this point with two quick parables there in verses 21 and 22. I know that you already know what they mean. They're very obvious by looking at them, but we'll go over them just in case. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Duh. Everybody know that? <laughs> if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's a bit cryptic first. Maybe it's helpful just to observe what these two pictures have in common. All right, so in both of these pictures, you have cloth, uh, wineskins. There's, there's something new that doesn't fit with something old. Do you see that? So there's something new that doesn't fit with something old. There's a, there's a new patch on an old garment. There's new wine in old wineskins. So it doesn't seem too difficult to me to see how this is a picture of the newness of Christ's ministry and how this newness of Christ's ministry is clashing with the religious tradition of the Pharisees. So over many generations, the Jewish religion and tradition had become something almost unrecognizable, even to the law on which it was based. So where the law gave one command, the tradition added 10 subjective rules to the law. And so here comes Jesus, who is Lord over it all, living out the true intention of their religion. And what's going to happen if you try to fit Jesus into that new man-made tradition, or that old man-made tradition? This is the second thing they have in common, which is the outcome. So if you take a piece of unshrunk cloth and you use it to patch an old, already shrunken garment, it'll rip a hole in it as it dries. 
If you take new wine, which expands as it ferments, and you put it into old wineskins, it'll burst the old thing open as it expands. The point? Jesus is not just a new clause for the religious leaders to write into their law. Jesus is the new messianic patch which tears a hole into the man-made religious tradition. Jesus is the new wine which will burst open the old wineskins of what had become traditional Judaism. So have you ever, you ever um, anybody here in a jeeping? You ever seen a real tricked out jeep, right? So jeep, you just go to the dealership, you, you buy a jeep, and it's like every other jeep. But if you're really serious about being a, a jeep person, you gotta add, add more things on to the original thing to show how serious you are about jeeping. And so you add new tires, you add new rims, a brush guard, a winch, get one of those snorkels in case you fall into the ocean. <laughs> so, so you add all kinds of things to make this original thing cooler than it was. Point being, this is not how Jesus works at all. So Jesus is not a new attachment to your religion. He's not a new appendage on an old religious system. Jesus is the one to whom the whole thing has been pointing all along. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the groom of his people. And if people try to just to fit Jesus into some kind of system, or if people come and, and try to use him as a means to their own religious end, well, he's going to bust a hole in the whole thing. If we try to fit Jesus into our old religious lives, we'll lose them both. You know, it seems to me that most of us have grown up with some kind of religious um, atmosphere, in some kind of religious culture, which means whether we're aware of it or not, most of us come, even to faith in Christ, with some kind of preformed system of redemption, of how sin is atoned for, of how salvation is accomplished. So maybe... Maybe you're a person who comes to faith with a bit toward believing that we have something to add to Christ's atonement, if you're to be really, truly safe and secure. Maybe you come to faith with some extra-biblical beliefs about what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life, what you can wear, where you can go, what you can watch, all these type things. The point is that Jesus did not come to fit into these previously held beliefs. He actually came to liberate you from them. He came to blow them up. So let me encourage you, all these different struggles, legalism, activism, moralism, fundamentalism, they are old, joyless, restless wineskins. And Christ, if you let him, he will burst a hole in them for you. He'll set you free from them. So to do this, though, it's, it's our role. We actually have got to pause and evaluate. Here's the question, is, is the person of Jesus himself the center of your spiritual life? Are all of your religious practices aimed at abiding in Christ? The purpose of all religion now in the new covenant under the reign of Christ is to help you to delight in, to rest in Christ. I think this is what Mark is showing us actually in the rest of the passage so, starting in, in chapter 2, verse 23, up into chapter 3, 
he brings the same reality of Jesus' lordship to bear on another core practice of religion, which is the Sabbath. And here we see a second point. It's point number two. Only two points today. Point number two. King Jesus turns our Sabbath stress into Sabbath rest. King Jesus, he turns our Sabbath stress into Sabbath rest. You see the, you see the context of the second passage there in verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. All right, so points of significance in this brief episode. It's the Sabbath, and the disciples are plucking. And at this, the Pharisees pipe up really loudly. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, when you, when you, try, to, when you try to actually picture the scene, it's ridiculous, isn't it? So the disciples are walking along, pick a head of grain, uh, off the tall grass, and the Pharisees pop up. You know, up, up, what are they doing? What are they doing? They can't do that. The scrupulosity is amazing. But this is the religious world in which they lived. And interestingly, the fact is, by the letter of the law, the disciples weren't technically breaking the Sabbath laws according to the Torah. So it was a violation to plow, to work, to reap on the Sabbath, because it was, a, it was not a day for work, but a day of rest. But what had become the religious tradition? The Pharisees say, if, you, if your fingers pinch a head of grain and it comes off and you snack on it, you're in sin. Now, these guys are a fun bunch, aren't they? <laughs> just, uh, just notice what's lacking in the religion of the Pharisees, no matter where you look in the Gospels. So what you, what you have there, there's, there's always a knowledge of the law. There's always an agreed-upon interpretation of the law. There's a clearly defined system of behavior in light of the law. This tradition has it all. All except what? Well, besides salvation. What do they lack? Joy, delight, gladness. You know, the fact is that you're not going to find a Pharisee being accused of enjoying his religion in, his day, in this day or in ours. They're clearly miserable in it. And, and why wouldn't they be? Theirs is a fasting with, without the joy of anticipation. Theirs is a, a Sabbath with no rest. And this is what happens. I think this is the point. This is what happens when the law becomes your Lord. But the question is, what, what happens? Well, what if someone came along with the ability to help them out from under the burden of the Sabbath as they had made it to be? So what if, what if someone came along who had the authority to reestablish the Sabbath as it was intended to be from the beginning? What if they didn't have to live as if, as if the Sabbath was Lord over them? What if there was a Lord even over the Sabbath? Well, there is, and it's God himself. Remember, God is the one who gave the Sabbath in the first place, and not even in the giving of the law, but when? In creation. God himself gave the Sabbath day as a creation gift. It was part of God's creation blessing for humanity. It was given not as a burden, but as a delight. At creation, God says that seventh day, don't work, enjoy, trust, rest. But what had the, what had the Sabbath become in the tradition of the Pharisees? 
It was just this, it was just this endless list of meticulous prohibitions where the law said not to work, the tradition said don't sew more than one stitch. Where the law said not to plow, the tradition said don't pluck a head of grain. But you see, from the beginning, the Sabbath was not to be a ruler, but a relief. So paradoxically, the Sabbath, which was originally given as a gift from God, as an occasion of faith-filled rest, it had become, in the hands of religion, one of the most spiritually restless, anxious, fretful times in the life of the community. No freedom, no joy, no blessing, no life, no rest, only stress. That was the Sabbath. And that's because the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, the law had become their Lord. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds by demonstrating to them that the Sabbath is not, it was never meant to be in the place of Lord. And this he does by, by telling this, telling them what seems to be kind of a random story. That's the, there in verse 25 and 26. So this is a story from 1 Samuel 24. This is a time David and his men are on the run from kind of a, a ravenous Saul who's seeking to murder them. So David and his men are trying not to get murdered. And the only food available for them as they're on the run is the bread of the presence in the house of God, set aside by the law for the priest alone. So what does David do in that story? Jesus relays it. In his need, he takes the bread of the presence and he eats it. He and his men. What are we supposed to see here? It seems that we're intended to take note that in the story, the law was not the ultimate ruling party. The law was not the Lord. In other words, if, if for you... The law means that David and his, and his men should, should sit and starve with bread in their hands. Well, then you've got the law all wrong. The law is intended for good, for preservation, for blessing. It's meant to serve mankind. The Sabbath, likewise, Jesus says, was made for man, not the other way around. It's not man was made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Lord. The Sabbath has a Lord. And that Lord has intended the Sabbath to be a great blessing to man. So the Lord made the Sabbath. He gave it to man for his good. That's the order of things. And how can Jesus make this authoritative declaration? How can Jesus look back on a story like this and make this de a declarative interpretation? Well, because, verse 28 says, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath has a Lord, one who can clarify its intent. The Lord of the Sabbath is God, and in the flesh, he is known as the Son of Man. That is Jesus. Jesus is the King. Jesus is Lord over all, including the Lord over the law, Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord, he has the authority to take this, this old creation gift, beaten up and malformed by the scruples of, of men, clean it up, shape it up, and rightly interpret it, that is the Sabbath, as the blessing for mankind that it was always meant to be. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, it's helpful for us to ask, are there any areas of life in which we're getting this out of order? Are there any areas in which our, our intent focus on the letter of the law is actually squeezed out the one who is the Lord of the law. 
the reality is that we're totally capable of insisting on, on things and rules that are, that are foreign even to Jesus. So this isn't at all to say we don't obey Christ. Of course we obey Christ. He's, he's Lord. But from passages like this, the impetus, I think, is on us to evaluate. Are there, are there any areas of my life in which I'm insisting on obedience to, to man-made religion over and above the Lord Jesus? Or are there, are there any ways in which I'm looking down on my brothers and sisters in secondary matters of, of food and drink, tradition and Sabbath? Do I, do I have a habit of disqualifying other people over items of mere religion, which were never meant to divide or even define God's people? Remember from early on in chapter, chapter 1, Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom. And the intent of this whole thing is a response. A new king is on the scene. He's announcing a new message. And there needs to be a response to that message. And the response is repentance and faith. And it seems that for some of us, repentance means, repentance may mean leaving the stress of a self-made religion to find rest in Christ. He's actually set us free from the laws that we've made unto ourselves. I think the the last section of this passage actually helps us to tease this out just a little bit. So in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, Jesus brings this theological principle. It's like he brings it down to street level so that we can see what he means in practice. In verse 1, chapter 3, Jesus heads back into the synagogue. And once again, importantly, when are we in the synagogue? We're on the Sabbath. Verse 2 makes clear. All right, so, so keep in mind, what's the, what's the point that Jesus has just made in relation to the Sabbath? He himself is Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord, he's rightly stated that the Sabbath is not anyone's Lord. It's meant to serve God's people. And yet, as he goes into the synagogue, there's this person with a known handicap there, a withered hand, verse 1 tells us. What are the Pharisees doing as Jesus enters into this situation? Are they, are they wondering how Jesus might, might be a blessing to this man? <laughs> Not at all. Verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And it's here, interestingly, that Jesus does something that he does nowhere else in Mark. And that is that he himself initiates healing without being asked. In other words, Jesus is making a point. Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to himself there in verse 3, and then he turns to the people. He says to them, verse 4, and he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Surprisingly, at least to me, Jesus doesn't ask, Is it lawful for me to heal this guy? Notice that? No, he gives two sets of categories. He says, on the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to take life? You notice with these questions, he's, he's aiming to take them right to the heart of the law. That is, the, the law isn't about the, the rules you come up with. No, at, at heart, in its basic purpose, the law is about doing good and not doing harm, bringing life, not taking life. Which means these are not difficult questions to answer. What's lawful? Do good. 
Don't do harm. Save life. Don't destroy life. These are not hard questions to answer. What's the response of the Pharisees, though? Silence. Just notice, when, you, when your religion, when your Lord is a set of laws that someone come up with, then what happens when, when, a, when a living, breathing, in the flesh, suffering human being stands in front of you in need of help on the, on the Sabbath? What happens? You're paralyzed. You, you can't, when you're so tied up in knots about the law, you, you can't even answer the most basic of religious questions, which is, does my Lord, the one who's over me, does the one I obey more than anyone or anything else, does, does my Lord allow me to do good to this suffering person right here in front of me? If your Lord is the law, you're not sure. You can't make in from the beginning. Even when it comes to good versus evil, you can't tell what's right. What, what does the law say? What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Get to the letter. Get to the iota. I, I wonder if you've ever experienced this. Maybe, maybe you've seen someone who's so religious that they can no longer tell what's good, what's evil. They're all letter of the law. They've lost all sense of the spirit of the law. You know, this is, this is why highly religious people are often homicidal people. Their allegiance is to some scruple of the law, not the Lord of the law. And Jesus evidently hates this. Their silence, their inability, their, their unwillingness to speak with clarity about the appropriateness of doing good to this person on the Sabbath, it grieves him. You see it there. He says, but they were silent. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was destroyed, <laughs> restored. <laughs> See if you're paying attention. You know, maybe, uh, maybe this is a passage, maybe it's a story that's clarifying for you. So maybe, maybe you're a person who's, who's often paralyzed by the letter of the law. So you can even see this when it comes to opportunity to do good to somebody in your life. Maybe there's an opportunity to, to be of service to another person, but your mind starts churning. And you say, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. It's what's really best for this person. How, how are they going to respond? How will other people view this? Is, is this what the Lord really wants? I don't, I don't know. You just keep asking these questions. You're tied up in knots. I think considering Jesus' question is really helpful. Is it lawful to do good or evil? What's the answer? Good. It's, it's, it's lawful to do good. It's Christ honoring to do good. It's living in subjection to the Lord of the law to do good. That is to live out the intent of the law. So when in doubt, do good. When you're tied up in knots, do good. When you're paralyzed, whether or not you should do good, do good. This is the spirit of the law that Jesus is restoring. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The, whole, the irony of this last interaction is that while Jesus is preparing to do good, to demonstrate for them the goodness of the spirit of the law, they are plotting his death. We saw that in verse 6. The Pharisees, they saw this, they went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. You see this? It's the blindness of a pharisaical heart, isn't it? They're, they're trying to sniff out the fourth commandment while breaking the sixth commandment. 
the, their hardness of heart. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? What, what else? Think about what else do they need to, to see about Jesus? What else do they need to, to see happen to know that he's Lord? Nothing. What, what evidence are they lacking? Nothing. None. I think this actually serves as a lesson for us in our own lives, in our hearts, maybe even in our evangelism. Why, why do these Pharisees, why do they reject Jesus? Look, it's so fascinating to me. The people who were actually there, they did not reject Jesus because of a lack of evidence. No, they actually, they actually rejected him in the face of overwhelming evidence. More evidence, in fact, more on-the-ground, in-your-face evidence than we'll ever have. The truth is, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't even doubt Jesus possessed the power to do all these things. You see that? So when they walked into the synagogue, they didn't say, I wonder if Jesus can heal this guy. They said, I wonder if he will heal this guy. They knew the power of Jesus. So why did they reject him? They didn't want him as their Lord. They wanted somebody else. They did not want Jesus as their king. They were, as Mark says, hard-hearted. They had seen huge amounts of evidence for God's power at work, and they still chose to ignore it. Let me just encourage you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a, a follower of Christ, let me just encourage you to turn to him today. So, by God's grace, in his word, you've seen the power of God on display. You've seen that Jesus has all authority. What we haven't gotten to, at least today, is the fact that Jesus, eventually he, he uses this power not to usurp himself over people, but to humble himself for people's sake, even unto death. So back in, in verse 20 of chapter 2, Jesus says that the day is going to come when these people come and they take the groom away from the, uh, away from the, the wedding party. Uh, this, is, this is what happened at the crucifixion of Christ. This is the very event being planned by the religious leaders there, starting in chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is taken away, and he's crucified. Did Jesus have the power to stop this? Of course he did. Could he have used his power to escape? Of course he did. Did he? No, he didn't. And why not? Because, with, because what the gospel says is that is that the same one who is the Lord over all is a Lord of love. And he laid down his own life to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would repent and trust in him for salvation. Let me just encourage you again, if you haven't turned to Christ as your Lord and King, there's not a better offer coming along. Jesus is the very Son of God in the flesh, and he alone has the ability and authority to make atonement for your sins. If you feel yourself being hard-hearted, humble yourself. Turn to Christ. Let that be you today. And for the rest of us, those who follow Christ as our King, I would just encourage us not to, I would encourage us to make sure that we're not missing the forest for the trees in the Christian life. Let's be sure that we're following the person of Christ, not just a program. Let's be sure that we're not just trying to fit Jesus into whatever system that we've got going on. He's so much better than that, so much more worthy than that. 
After all, it's only in him that our disciplined fasting ends in delighted feasting, like here at the table. It's only in Christ that our Sabbath stress gives way to Sabbath rest. This is the aim and the glory of our King, King Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you all the praise. Uh, King Jesus, we do submit to you, and we honor you, and we ask that we would live lives not to fit you into any kind of system that we have or any kind of program that we have going on. We pray that we be people in a church who submits all of life to you, knowing that you're the one uh, who gives us relief and rest. You're the one uh, for whom we were created and who's made atonement for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.